Well, hi everyone, and welcome to the Effective Teaching Podcast. I'm Dan Jackson. The show notes for this episode go to teacherspd.net slash 48. Today, I'm going to be talking with you about formative assessment. In fact, I'm not really going to be doing most of the talking. I have with me the one and only Emetrius Professor, Dylan William. Thank you so much for joining me, Dylan. You're welcome, though. Now, you're the Emetrius Professor of Educational Assessment at UCL Institute of Education. Uh, you also yep. have published very, very many uh, academic peer-reviewed articles as well as written multiple books all around formative assessment. And currently your big focus is on helping teachers to really implement this into their classroom. So I really appreciate you giving up some of your time for me today. You're welcome. I'd like, I'd like to start today just by asking you why you think formative assessment is so important. I think there's two cases you can make for formative assessment. One is the obvious intuitive case. 50 years ago, David Azubel, an educational psychologist, pointed out that the most important single factor in learning is what the learner already knows, and that good teachers should ascertain that and teach accordingly. Start from where the students are rather than where you'd like them to be. And because students don't necessarily learn what we teach, we need assessment to find out where they are. Assessment is the bridge between teaching and learning. That's the intuitive case. It's obvious that finding out what your students have learned, what sense they've made of what you've talked about, would actually improve your teaching. The empirical case comes from a huge number of research studies now, but most importantly, from a recent randomized controlled trial that was done in England, where a group of 140 high schools were randomized into two batches. Half of them got cash, and half of them got protocols that teachers could use to actually focus on formative assessment and support each other in making changes. And two years later, they looked at the exam results and the kids in the schools taught by the teachers who were doing formative assessment had made 25% more progress over the last two years of high school. So, and the cost was something like $2 per student per year. So right now, in terms of the evidence that we've got, there is nothing a teacher can do that is more cost effective to improve their teaching than formative assessment. That's why formative assessment should be a priority for every teacher and for every school. Oh, thank you. Definitely, I, I would 100% agree with that in terms of it being a number one priority for making sure that teachers get this right. Can you tell me though, how does it link specifically with helping students to become lifelong learners? Well, we define formative assessment as being composed of five strategies. The first is being clear about what you want your students to learn, learning attention as a success criteria. The second involves teachers finding out what students have learned. The third involves giving feedback. The fourth involves peer tutoring and students helping each other. And the last one we call activating students as owners of their own learning. And in many ways, this is where the other four strategies lead to. So let me give you an example. Um, I often observe teachers. And at the end of the lesson, you know, anybody who's watched a teacher teach, they know that at the end of the lesson, the teacher being observed says, how did I go? And I say, how do you think you went? Because if that person can give me a good answer, my work here is done. That person knows what they need to do to get better. And that's why I think the major purpose of feedback is to make students into people who can look after their own learning, self-regulating learners in a psychological jargon. Feedback that makes students more dependent on feedback is bad feedback. The whole purpose of teachers finding stuff out and giving feedback to learners is to help students be able to take over their own learning 
And because that can be quite difficult, peers have a role to play here as well. So we see peer assessment as a stepping stone to self-assessment. If you give students what the Americans call a rubric or a scoring guide, it's very hard to apply that to your own work. It's much easier to apply to somebody else's work. Students are much better at spotting mistakes in other people's work than they are in their own. But when they apply these criteria to somebody else's work, they internalize the criteria themselves. So we see peer assessment as a stepping stone to self-assessment, where students practice assessing a less emotionally charged piece of work, somebody else's, before they try to apply to themselves. So if, in other words, the other four strategies of, of formative assessment all lead towards making students more effective owners of their own learning. Okay, so essentially then our goal for formative assessment is to help our students become owners of their own learning. Yeah, it is. That's, it all leads to that. That's beautiful. I, I really love that as, as the goal because often formative assessment is pitched as, you know, the goal of it is to find out you know, where the student is and then what they need to do next. But you actually see the whole goal of that is really helping to develop the students becoming, you know, those independent learners. I think that's, that's, a, that's a better long-term view to what you're doing and then helps you to guide what you actually provide them in terms of feedback as well. Absolutely. And if you want to see good examples of that, look at instrumental music teachers in schools. You know, an instrumental music teacher will get 20 to 30 minutes once a week with a student. Nobody can learn to play a musical instrument in 30 minutes a week. That child will learn to play a musical instrument if they go home and practice productively. So what the best music teachers do is they make sure that that student can assess their own performance. So when they go home and practice, that practice is productive rather than actually in, in, ingraining bad practices or bad techniques that will harm their future progress. So you know, good music teachers have known this for hundreds of years because you don't have enough time. The, the learner has to be good at listening to their own performance so they can improve themselves. And that's exactly what we want with academic subjects as well. Okay, so how does a teacher then go about making sure that what they're doing in terms of formative assessment, they're doing well, that that's actually gonna have an impact on their students? Well, I think the starting point is to realize that this is just a, a kind of expansion of the things we've done for years. So back in the 1970s and 80s, Madeline Hunter talked about the importance of frequent checks for understanding. But typically, when teachers check for understanding, they ask the whole class a question, six kids raise their hands, the teacher picks on one of them, and if the kid gives the right answer, the teacher says, good, and moves on. So what I'm suggesting is, if you really want to meet the learning needs of all your students, then you need better evidence. You need to get evidence about what's happening in the heads of all the kids in the class rather than just the confident individuals who want to share their thinking with you. And so the starting point really is getting better quality evidence because better quality evidence leads to better decisions by teachers, which leads to better learning. But then over time, we need to move the onus away from the teacher towards the learner. And so sometimes the teacher needs to model effective practice so the student can take it over for themselves. Sometimes they need to do it through peers. But we've got something like, I don't know, 100 and something techniques that teachers can use. And what we found, people always ask us, which, which technique is the best one to start with? And there's no answer to that question because different teachers take up different ideas. In one of the studies we did in England, we had 12 math teachers and 12 science teachers. And we asked them to choose just two techniques to work on. No two teachers made the same choice. Every teacher had an idiosyncratic choice of what they thought 
would work best for their students in their classroom. So, you know, reading up about this, you can watch the videos I've posted that are available free on YouTube. The important point is you just think of one technique that you think you'd like to try and then work on that until it's second nature. Uh, I've lost track of the number of times I've described a technique to a group of teachers and somebody says to me, oh yeah, I used to do that, it was good. <laughs> I used to do that, it was good, but something else came along and I don't do it anymore. And that's the problem. Teachers are always pushed onto the next thing before they've done the last thing properly, before it's become a habit. So the other thing we have to do is to give teachers permission to move as slowly as they feel comfortable with. And if this is not yet a habit, you need to carry on focusing on this. Once it's a habit, once it's second nature, then you can move on. But too often we end up pushing teachers on, which is why each new wave of reform doesn't build on the previous one, it merely displaces it. Yeah, I'm gonna say we're going through a lot of reforms at the moment in New South Wales where I'm based. And yeah, I do see particularly yeah, every time there's a new book that comes out, if it starts to actually make you know, headway and people start to read it, suddenly everyone takes on everything that's in that book, but then it'll just replaces the previous book and then go on to the next book or you know, the next lot of PD that the person has done. And they are constantly changing what they're doing rather than finding something that works and then kind of sticking with that to make sure that it's ingrained in their, in their learning process or in their teaching process. Can you maybe give us just five examples of what you would give teachers to choose from, for example, in your studies? Well, for example, with sharing learning intentions, I would, if I was teaching high school English, I would give kids three different Shakespeare essays and I'd get them to say, are some of these better than others? I wouldn't give them the rubric or the scoring guide. I'd just say, look at these essays. Are some of these better than others? And I'd be very careful to make sure that the longest one wasn't the best because the kids don't, you know, get <laughs> And then I say, so what's good about the good ones? What's missing about the ones that are less good? And by giving kids practical examples, they converge on the required standard far more quickly than if you give them an abstract description. Uh, eliciting evidence, the obvious one is all student response systems. Now, many people have these electronic voting systems in their classrooms, these so-called clickers. Um, I hate them. You know, if you want to create if you want to create a culture in your classroom where students feel okay about making mistakes, the last thing you should do is record every mistake in an Excel spreadsheet. That's why I like multiple choice questions where students just vote one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D, five for E, and as soon as the teacher has eyeballed the whole class, the hands go down and the teacher makes a decision about what to do next. So the evidence that you got it wrong is not recorded, it's just used by the teacher in making a better decision. As for okay. feedback, does that refer a little bit to what you mentioned there, the whole raising hands, the ABC thing? Is that kind of, I know in your books you talk about um, a hinge question, I think is what it's called. A hinge question is a particular point in a lesson where it's useful to use one of those multiple choice questions that I talked about. So uh, a hinge question is any point, any question you ask in a lesson at a hinge where you're not sure whether to go one way or another way. So. When you've got a hinge point in the lesson, what you ask is a hinge question. But I think, um, you know, any point. So sometimes you might ask a hinge question at the beginning of the lesson. If it's a new class, if it's a new topic, you might just you ask a question just to find out where the kids are coming from. So, so the, the idea is you use a multiple choice question just to make a decision about what to do next. For feedback, I think the big idea I, was, I would share here is that we all, many teachers think that the purpose of feedback is to improve the, the work 
and it's not. The purpose of feedback is to improve the student. Correcting kids' work has almost no value because you're correcting the work, but the student doesn't benefit. The purpose of feedback is to help that student do a better job at some point in the future on a similar task they've not yet attempted. And so I think, first, you know, some simple ideas here, feedback should be more work for the recipient than the donor. And the important point is feature, feedback is looking into the future. It's about what's next in learning. It's basically the medical, not the post-mortem. For students um, uh, supporting each other, well, one of the things you can do in science, for example, with a lab report, before I can hand it into the teacher, I have to get my buddy to go through the checklist of all the things the teacher wants. And if my buddy signs off on this, then I can hand it in. The clever part is if the buddy said it was okay and it's not okay, it's the buddy who's in trouble, not me, because he let me down. So you make students accountable for the quality of support they give each other. And finally, um, in terms of developing your own um, self-assessment skills, I quite like the idea of a learning portfolio. So every kid keeps two portfolios in English or in art or in design and technology. One is the presentation portfolio, your latest and best. But the other is the, the learning portfolio. This is the stuff that you've done over the years showing your learning journey. And so the important point is here, you can see how much progress you've made, which builds into what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. The idea is that by working hard, you're getting smarter. Yeah, I think it's really important that whole growth mindset process. I really like the idea of vision portfolios a lot in my teaching that I do. And to see, I like to point out to the students here how they've actually progressed. Because often, yeah. um, Hattie has stuff in his book about um, visual learning and the science of how students learn. He's got a whole section in there around how to help students with their motivation to learn. Uh, and that one of the key things that's in that book about how you overcome it is that when they get stuck at a point and they're, you know, they're not as motivated, if you actually point out previous learning where they've had a similar thing happen, and then motivates them to realise that they can actually do what's in front of them. Uh, and so yeah. having that learning, you know, that, that process profile is a really good way to do that. You just go, well, let's have a look back here, see where you were, look at the progress you've made. You know, it's very similar right now. We're stuck at this point, but you, know, you were stuck at that point in this previous learning as well. And so you can overcome that. Let's go through what did you do then? What can you do now to then overcome this hurdle and then and continue to do your, that learning going forward? Absolutely. And, you know, this is, this is why it's really important to get students to reflect because you mustn't lose those moments where the kid got stuck and then was successful because then you've got that dialogue. Remember how you said you were stuck and you couldn't do it and then you persevered and you were successful. So this whole idea of I've been here before, you know, I've, I've been this stuck before and I had the abilities to work through it. And, of course, that's what Bandura calls self-efficacy knowing that you can carry through your plans. And it's hugely valuable because it means in the face of difficulties, you try harder. Whereas if you don't think you can succeed, in the face of difficulties, you give up because you think you've reached your plateau. And I think these ideas are bound up with, with growth mindset. There's one thing you have to watch, though. Um, invisible learning, John Hattie, like many researchers, tends to treat motivation as an input into learning. Kids succeed because they're motivated. Some recent research in both maths and in English has shown that actually success causes motivation at least as much as motivation causes success. So I think we have to understand 
that these, these two things are mutually constitutive. They actually feed off each other. And so sometimes just breaking things down and taking the students through the steps and building them back up again, like good sports coaches do. Yeah. Just showing students how to be successful can actually be more motivating than anything else. And I think we have to be careful about not losing sight of the fact that success is highly motivating for students. Yeah, yeah. I, I talk about it as a like a cyclical process, really. That you know, once once a student is motivated and gets success, then that then feeds into more motivation for more success. And that's part of I think what causes you know if you can do quality teaching in your classroom and that leads to students being successful learners and then helps to lead them towards being lifelong learners because they see themselves as successful learners uh, and that feeds into their future I think. Yeah, and I think this is really important these days. Uh, you know, I think um, 30 years ago, now Seymour Papert says, said basically, um, what we need to do is to produce students who know how to act when they're faced with situations for which they were not specifically prepared. You know, when I started teaching in the 1970s, I knew what I was doing with my students. We were preparing them for a safe job that they have for their whole lives. And now, you know, learning to learn is not a nice thing to have. Learning to learn is a survival skill because you're never going to learn enough by the age of 18 to take you through the rest of your life. Now, I'm not sure the university is necessarily the right place to acquire those skills. For a lot of skills, they're not that useful. So I'm certainly not advocating college for all, but I am advocating the fact that for most people, they're going to need to acquire skills beyond what you can acquire by the age of 18. So the worst thing we can do for any child is to turn them off learning. So can you give me some practical advice for our, our listeners at the moment? So what, what can teachers do this week or over the next couple of weeks to really prepare to be able to implement some proper formative assessment in their classroom that's going to have an impact for their students? Where, where, do you, where would you recommend they start? Well, as I said, we found that different places start in different, you know, for different teachers in, in different ways. So for me, you know, I've, I've given you five techniques already. But for me, it's just thinking about how can you make decisions that better support your learners? So if you're an art teacher, most of your conversations are one-to-one. -one. So thinking about how you can actually interact more effectively with your students. One of the things I would say to art teachers is don't ask questions, make statements. It's been shown that when you make statements rather than asking questions, students respond more thoughtfully and at greater length. Now, we don't know why. My hunch is because you can be wrong answering a question. You can't be wrong responding to a statement. And so a statement is a much better way of opening up the dialogue with a child. So if, you're, if your subject is, mo is one where most of the interactions are one-to-one, -one, then just trying to get into the habit of making statements rather than asking questions can be a good start. If you're teaching large groups, then the techniques I mentioned earlier of all, of all student response systems, finger voting, but plan your questions. And ideally, you know, take, a, take a moment in a lesson when you're distinguishing between meiosis and mitosis, for example, then sit down with a colleague and plan a really good question to ask at this point. What would be the best question to ask at this point to check that the students have got it? Um, peer tutoring, uh, I, I mentioned already a couple of examples, but collaborative learning. So um, if you're in New South Wales, obviously you've got the, the big exams at the age of 18, the high school certificate. Um, when kids are doing practice tests, get them to do practice tests under test conditions, but don't mark them. Instead, take the papers off them and the next day give each group of four students back their four exam papers and one blank sheet 
And they, as a group, have to come up with their best composite response. So they're discussing their responses. And they say, who's got the best answer to question one? Who's got the best answer to question two? And the teacher can lead a plenary discussion with each table, contributing its answers. And then you can get into things like exam technique. And then finally, a technique that we found very interesting and very useful just in getting students smarter about their own thinking is plus minus interesting. So at the end of a piece of work, you just ask students to reflect on what they just did, something you found easy, something you found difficult, and something you found interesting about the task. Now, I'm not a big fan of asking students to do a self-assessment with a traffic light, you know, green, yellow, red, because we now know something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to overstate your knowledge. So asking students, do you understand that, actually isn't helpful, partly because people don't want to admit it, but more importantly, because they don't know that they don't know. If you don't know very much about something, you don't know enough to know that you don't know very much. And so these ideas are often used to, like, everyone okay with that? Thumbs up, thumbs down, red, green, yellow. I don't think that's good formative assessment. But getting students to reflect on what you found easy, what you found hard, what you found interesting, gives the teacher information. And what teachers have told us is that when they engage students in this kind of reflective activity, the students become clearer and sharper in asking for help, which saves the teacher a huge amount of time. So one teacher said to me, my kids used to say, I can't do quadratics. And the teacher would say, what can't you do about quadratics? And the kid would say, I can't do any of it. And this teacher said to me, they now say things like, I can't do quadratics when there's a minus in front of the X squared. So we see an increase in the precision and clarity of students' questions, which saves the teacher a huge amount of time. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think if we can get our students asking questions that are that specific in terms of what they're identifying what they need and makes our job a lot easier to just provide exactly what they need at that time. But Dylan, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this chat. I particularly like what you said about you know, preparing kids for the HSC exam. It's one of the things I do a lot of is preparing kids for that and I'm going to steal that strategy uh, next time I have kids doing an actual past exam and then doing that whole collaborative nature approach. I think that's fantastic. Uh, and everything else you've shared with us has really been really very helpful, I think, for any teacher who's listening to this. So, again, if you're listening, this is episode 48, so you can get the show notes at teacherspd.net slash 48. I'll have links up there to Dylan Williams' book. I'll have links as well to his website so you can go find out more about him and his work and all that he has done for our profession, which I, I must say I've really I've loved reading your books. I've loved implementing that stuff into my classrooms. And I guess it is a lot to, to try and implement, but I think there's a nice approach that's built into uh, a lot of your books in terms of how to actually set things up for success in your classrooms. So I highly recommend that people go and read that. So again, thank you so much for your time. And I, I hope that at some point in the future, I should get to do this again and chat in a bit more detail about a few of those aspects of formative assessment. You're welcome. Look forward to it.